0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander and as always I'm joined by Kobus van Staden from the Centre for Chinese Studies at Stellenbosch University in lovely Cape Town, South Africa. How are you today Kobus?
1: I'm great, thanks and you.
0: Wonderful and I am just absolutely thrilled that uh, for today's show we've got a guest who I've been wanting to talk to for months we tried to bring her on uh, a couple months ago we had some internet connection problems but she's back uh Rafaid Alayu I hope I said your name right please forgive me if yeah, I, Ruff, I didn't Yes. Yeah. Uh, Rafaid is a uh, is a writer is uh, based uh, originally from Nigeria but now based in London and she writes for this is Africa she writes for her own blog Eccentric Yoruba And also she writes for a number of consultancies, so we're absolutely thrilled to have her on because she is going to be the focus of our first part of our discussion on China and Chinese and African culture and pop culture in particular, an article that she wrote for uh, really one of the best blogs that's out there called This is Africa. And she wrote a piece, Fiction vs. Reality, the Portrayal of Chinese People in African Pop Culture. And it's really one of my favorite subjects because it shows the evolution of the discussion beyond the superficial to really talking about how people uh, are, are actually coming together in lots of different ways and, and how that's reflected in the media. So we'll talk about that. Uh, then we're going to shift our attention to Ghana, where there's been uh, really a lot of activity in the past couple uh, past couple weeks there. Um, One instance, uh, incident in particular, uh, that caught the attention of both the international press and the African media this past week was the killing of a 16 year old. Uh, young man uh, who of Chinese origin uh, who was allegedly mining illegally in gold, and that's a very, very sensitive issue in Ghana. We'll talk about that. It actually generated uh, a response from the Chinese Foreign Ministry in Beijing, which these types of things usually do not. So we will uh, we'll address that and talk about Ghana. And there's also kind of part of that is an editorial that was written by the Chinese blog Tea Leaf Nation, which called for a, an urgent reset of China's relationship with Africa and tied in part to this issue in Ghana. So we'll kind of talk about that. And finally, we're going to come back to some writing that Raphael did uh, on land grabs and this whole idea that there's a perception out there that China is, is is gobbling up African agricultural land and this word land grab is really a loaded word and it has almost a colonial type of uh, association with it. We will in fact talk about agriculture, the agricultural sector in Africa and China's investment in that space and see if there is in fact anything to be concerned about with respect to the way in which China is investing in African agriculture. So a big show ahead. Let's get started first, uh, right off the bat, with this uh, with this article this, that came out actually in May, uh, on May 9th, on the ThisIsAfrica.me website. Uh, tell, Rafael, tell us a little bit about what inspired you to write about the the cross section of, of of China and Chinese in uh, African pop culture, particularly in Nigeria. Uh, where Nollywood exists, tell us a little bit about the, what led to this article.
2: I've got a background in international relations. At my masters, I did study about China and Africa, but that was all about politics and, you know, politics and economics. So it wasn't really on in relation to media. But anytime I, because I studied in the UK and anytime I went back to Nigeria, I'd always noticed that there were more and more Chinese people on ground, so I wanted to like, I was interested in like how, why more Chinese people were coming and you know why I was seeing more Chinese people not only in Abuja, which is where I live, but also like in the movies that I watched that had a few Chinese men popping out and I was interested in how they were portrayed as as opposed to how they were portrayed like in serious things that are not related to movies or adverts or music videos. So, you,
0: you know, and Kobus, you and I have talked about this over, over the past couple, you know, I'd say now four or five months when we talk about the perceptions of the Chinese. And Rafid, I'd like to get your kind of feedback on this. There's oftentimes a perception in Africa that anybody who's not black African is white. Uh, And there's there's not a lot of experience in dealing with kind of this type of multiculturalism and this type of inter inter intercultural dialogue. So when you look at Nollywood perceptions of of Chinese and portrayals of Chinese, do they just treat them as another kind of branch of being white or do they actually understand some of the the specific, uh, you know, cultural points of being Chinese? And is there something special about them being Chinese?
2: You're right when um, you say that.
0: Oh, oh Go ahead, Rafi. Well, um, no, go ahead, Raffae. No, no, no,
2: no. <laughs> I was going to say you're very right with saying that, you know, Nigerians regard anyone who doesn't have brown skin as being white. So in um, Chinese people in Nollywood are treated the same way. Like in the movies, I've watched White Hunters and Facebook Babes, which is all about um, Nigerian women chasing after white men who are rich. That's what the Chinese men were there for. They were, you know, rich foreign men who, want, who, you know, were targets for Nigerian gold diggers who needed money. But there was nothing specific about Chinese culture. Apart from in Facebook, where there was actually a scene where the actress was speaking just a bit of Chinese.
0: Yeah, well, it was wasn't in...
2: anything possible <laughs> why?
0: So, she, but, so that person could have been speaking German or or Dutch or any other language. So it was just a foreigner in that case. It wasn't actually that they were specifically Chinese.
2: Sure, I think it was just a foreigner and I think in some ways, I mean, because of how it what a um like how it is in Nigeria, apparently, the, some people believe that Chinese people are more willing to interact with um with Nigerians as opposed to any other foreigners. So maybe that's probably why they're more Chinese people in Nigerian videos because maybe they're more willing to come on and...
1: You know, I was basically going to make the same point as, as Rafiat. Um, you, you made a distinction in your article about the way that different kind of Asian people are portrayed in the sense that that Chinese people are portrayed as stingy and Indians are portrayed as as not being hygienic. Um, where do you think these these stereotypes come from?
2: I'm not sure exactly. Maybe some, most stereotypes come from like West, in the West, from the West in a way, like from movies that we've seen about how like Chinese people are portrayed and also from like obviously Chinese and Indians um, act on the ground because the stereotype about Chinese people being stingy, almost everyone in Nigeria would go for that, you know, Um, for example, some of my family members, they'd say, oh, I'd never work for a Chinese person because they never pay enough or, you know, the Indians use too much spices, which is why they smell. (laughs) <laughs> but not. But yeah, these these stereotypes—they're not—they're not—they're um, not isolated because I've heard similar stereotypes like elsewhere in the world. But they must be connected in a way, maybe from the West, Western influence in terms of like movies or something. But.
0: I guess I'm curious a little bit about you, you know the evolution of the the cross cultural exchanges that are that are starting to happen. So, you know, really the presence of the Chinese in Africa has been, I'd say, for the past ten years, where that that really big population. And in the next 10 years, you're going to start seeing the first generation of offspring, of children who were born to Chinese families but are effectively African. That's the only place they know. uh, That's the only language they know and the only culture that they know is being in Abuja or in South Africa or in Lusaka. And it'll be interesting to see how that second generation starts to kind of contribute to media, whether it's in social media, whether it's in YouTube or whether it's in, uh, you know, in in, in the popular culture, in the Nollywood culture. So I wonder if you'll if you expect a more sophisticated or subtle uh, kind of portrayal and depiction of Chinese to emerge or is not is Nollywood too much like Hollywood and set in its ways in terms of how it sees minorities of any kind.
2: Um, I actually expect the former. I think it'd become more sophisticated as more, more Chinese are like living in Abuja, and like you said about the Chinese because I've seen a few Chinese kids who go to school and who knew in other events going around in Abuja. So I think it would actually change and maybe become a bit more sophisticated. But you know, that's just a hope. Maybe it wouldn't.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess we'll only we'll, we'll, time will tell on that front. Copus, uh, what are you seeing in South Africa where, you know, in South Africa, it, it feels like the opinions of the Chinese are hardening a little bit over the past, you know, several years now, and particularly what we've seen in terms of the, the, the tougher stance that unions are, are taking against the, the Chinese. And so will that, you think, kind of filter back into the pop culture and to the reflection of Chinese in media?
1: Well I think in South Africa um there are a, a certain amount of Chinese um people of Chinese origin who are who have now been living in South Africa for more than a, more than a generation um and some of them are Actually, in the culture industry, you know, kind of, so they there are journalists and there are the writers and so on, and they've done a lot of work on, um, you know, kind of recording the history of Chinese people coming to South Africa. So I think slowly but surely, that you know, kind of their contribution is 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 complicating how people see the, their kind of history. Um, you know, in, in terms of, um, I think South Africa is maybe a special case because it's it's so cosmopolitan and there's so many people from so many different places that um, you know, I'm not. sure sure that it's necessarily anti-Chinese attitudes that are hardening. I think at the moment, South Africa is in a moment of uh, of, of real political flux. Um, and, you know, South Africans tend to be more focused on, on, you know, what's going to come out of changes within the party rather than necessarily from outside.
0: Now, Raphael, you also mentioned in your article about how a Ghanaian gin company had uh, tapped into using Chinese characters in one of their commercials. Why do you think that that gin company decided that this was something they wanted to do and, and would help them actually sell gin?
2: Um, my, my guess is actually that they must have had some, um, like, business deals with them, with the Chinese company based in Ghana and maybe they will just sort of brainstorming and, you know, they thought they could use the Chinese man in the video to make a funny advert, which is what yeah. I think happened.
0: You, you know, what's funny is that it reminds me a lot of, I mean, the, the Chinese oftentimes are pa- playing the role of, you know, the buffoon and the character and they're, they're laughing yes. at themselves and there's almost, you know, and I hate to bring up this very racially sensitive issue, but there is almost a blackface quality to it all. Um, you know, in the in the United States, in the '50s and the '40s, in the periods of, uh, of of racial discrimination, the you know the Amos and Andy type characters, where blacks were you know on TV were always portrayed as being kind of you know jokers and jovial, and they they did nothing but entertain, and there was no depth to their character in any way. And it almost seems like the first. That is a typical first level that almost most groups and minorities in particular have to pass through in order to get to a more sophisticated portrayal and a more sophisticated treatment of their narrative in popular culture. What do you get the sense when you look at these images of Chinese on on Nigerian and Ghanaian and, and other African media? That they do, they know what they're doing when they participate in this media. Do they understand the impact, do you think, or they're just kind of going along for the ride because, well, it's a chance to be on TV and that's just fun?
2: Yeah, I feel that, um, in some ways, they understand the impact because, um, maybe they come, they're willing to appear in the movies to show that, oh, you know, maybe all Chinese people are not all that bad, but at the same time, it's also. Um, a way of just getting into the fun because the Ghanaian ads, they just look like pure comedy because almost all the characters there were just meant to be funny and not, they were not meant to be like taken seriously. They're all funny characters. But in Nollywood, um, it seems that it's more of Chinese people coming out there and like trying to show that, okay, we're willing to interact with you and we're willing to appear in your movies more than any other people would.
0: You know, uh, Kobus, it's interesting because we, we, we kind of contrast this kind of view of Chinese and media, and we've talked a lot about how CCTV and the official Chinese media is making a huge push on Africa and trying to create a different narrative and a different perception of the Chinese in Africa. So in some ways, they're, they're, conflict- they're conflicting images on these two, where one is kind of a, a light-hearted and the other one is a serious, credible way. What's your thought on terms of, of, of these different perceptions of the Chinese and African media?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was very interesting to see, um, you know, how the person that appeared in the Ghanaian ads, they he also appeared in a documentary um, about Chinese in Africa. And you know, kind of while in the Ghanaian ads, he's incredibly jovial and uh, you know, and, and kind of hanging out. And also married, you know, in the, according to his character, is married to a Ghanaian woman. In reality, he said he would never marry a Ghanaian woman, <laughs> and he's, because his, his kids would be too culturally confused. confused yeah. <laughs> so, so that was very funny for me, it's very interesting. Um, On the other hand, I think there's also, um, in terms of new media, Um, you know there's I I came across in researching this I came across a site called Nollywood Gossip which is basically uh, you know all kinds of like crazy stories from all over the world kind of being aggregated on you know kind of together with with gossip from the um, entertainment industry in Nigeria and um, and it was interesting to see China playing this role as this kind of incredibly exotic other place you know um, within you know Nigerian society where you would see like YouTube clips of Chinese people doing all kinds of interesting bizarre kind of mad and stories of like, oh, this guy is a cannibal, you know, and so <laughs> on. So it is very interesting to see how China played this role in of this very far away, exotic place, you know, kind of in, in kind of on this Nigerian website. I was wondering if Rafiat, if, if you also kind of experienced that. Yeah. Well, um, when I went
2: to Nollywood gossip, I felt that. Like I noticed, a lot of the videos were quite shocking in their content, and I felt that in some ways it still sort of portrays China as this like other mythical land. Because and especially in regards to the cannibal video, because a lot of Nigerians actually believe that Chinese people eat human beings. I think that actually started. <laughs> out Which is because ironic because that, a lot know. of
0: Chinese think the Africans eat human beings and Nigerians too. <laughs> yes. So I think that's a mutual type of uh, misunderstanding. <laughs> so you
2: Stereotype, yeah. <laughs> So um, uh, at the same time, I found that some of the videos are actually quite a bit educational because there was one on the Yao ethnic minority and um, a village in Hangzhou or something, which was quite interesting. So not all of them were shocking.
0: Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So the uh, I mean, really, what Rafid is doing is kind of writing the first chapter in this really long book that's going to be the China-Africa engagement and, and we've talked about, you know, we talk about politics, we talk about economics, and we talk about all these other more sensitive issues. But at the end of the day, the culture and the people and the pop culture and how they're reflected will really determine in many ways the shape of Sino-African relations to come. And this article that she wrote in This Is Africa, that's at thisisAfrica.me. Fiction versus reality the portrayal of chinese people in african pop culture um, it's absolutely fantastic and it's a must see unfortunately a lot of the clips uh for uh for white hunter uh, which is one of the videos that uh, that was featured in her article, and have now been taken offline. And so you so may not I'm be able to... Yeah, YouTube has blocked a <laughs> bunch of these clips. So if you want to see the movie online, you're going to have to find some other ways to download them. Uh, but nonetheless, the article is excellent, and it really does start this conversation on the kind of the cultural component of what's been talking about. So turning now to Ghana and the f- fact that it's become a flashpoint in the past few weeks in terms of uh, illegal gold mining. Now, this was a story that really kind of popped up on the radar a few months ago when it was uh, when it was brought to the attention of the Ghanaian officials that, you know, hundreds of Chinese miners were illegally mining. We talked to one of our regular contributors, Quabuena, about this, and he was talking about how really it's a very sensitive issue and people are as angry with the Chinese as they are with the government for not enforcing uh, immigration laws. Now, this week, uh, we saw the fact that a 16-year-old boy was shot and killed. Uh, who was he? And you know, this Chinese boy was apparently uh, mining illegally as well. Normally, these types of things don't turn into international incidents. But this past week, Hong Lei, who is the foreign ministry spokesman for the Chinese uh, in Beijing, for the and she actually said that they were very upset by this, and they have pressured. Uh, the embassy in in Accra to ask for an investigation. Cobus, this is important in part because Ghana now is becoming increasingly dependent on the Chinese for huge loans. We've seen the launch of a new airline, uh, which is a Sino-African sino uh, ghanaian project. There's announcement of a new airport that's going to be built outside of Accra and so these types of uh, of deals that the ghanaians have give the chinese leverage to push them on these ty- on when when incidents like this come up uh, what's your thought in terms of this latest incident of mining and how it fits into the broader geopolitical relationship between Ghana and and China? Yeah,
1: you know, as you as you mentioned, we've um, we've talked about the the issue of, of illegal mining and the Chinese involvement in illegal mining um, earlier this year, um, and obviously this is a Ghana as a major gold producer, um, and unlike South Africa, which is the other African major gold producer, um, Ghanaian gold, um, as far as I understand, is closer to the surface, so it tends to be closer you know there's more alluvial gold in ghana um you know gold showing up in river river beds um so you it's much easier for uh for small time you know kind of uh, amateurs basically to to get to pan for gold and to to do kind of small time kind of uh, surface mining whereas in South Africa you have to go you know like a kilometer below ground um so you know kind of that i think means that, you know, Ghana has had a long problem with, uh, with informal mining for a long time, not only with Chinese but with Ghanaians themselves and also with people from all kinds of other, you know, kind of areas in Africa and, and from overseas. Um, but, you know, the Chinese have now become a flashpoint. Um, and the the incident now, I think, is the f- as far as I understand, a bunch of people have been arrested and since then released. Uh, 101 of Chinese uh, miners have been have been arrested and then released. Freedom. But as far as I Yes, the freedom bail. Um, And, uh, you know, but this is the first time that someone's gotten killed. And obviously this kind of ratchets it up, you know, kind of to a much higher, kind of much more dramatic level. Um, And the fact that he's 16 and the fact that, uh, from what I could understand, that he was fleeing at the time, you know, kind of makes the Ghanaian security forces look, you know, not wonderful.
0: And let's not forget uh, that also, you know, so gold is one issue, but the fact is that, you know, Ghana has discovered huge oil deposits off its coast, and the Chinese are very interested in that as well. So that relationship uh, is there. Rafi, one of the the problems that a lot of African leaders, and it seems like it's coming now to to, to the new administration in Accra, is on the one hand, they want to deal with China as a major investor, as a major backer uh, you know for infrastructure and, and you know a big big partner to help develop the country, but on the other hand they 've got this big emerging problem of these Chinese populations who are largely undocumented, who are actually competing with locals for many of the jobs, whether it 's beauty salons in namibia whether we 're seeing small merchants in malawi here 's illegal gold mining. And the governments just don't seem to have an answer on how to deal with both, because if they crack down too hard on these Chinese national migrants who are not affiliated with the government, then they piss off the Chinese government. But if they don't crack down, then they piss off the locals and their constituencies who may be part of their power base. What are these governments supposed to do, in your opinion?
2: Obviously, I feel the government should be more proactive in protecting the rights of their own people. But in some ways, like what is happening here, I feel it has also happened in China with a lot of the African immigrants who have, you know, set up businesses in the south of China. So I was reading the T Live Nation article, I noticed that a lot of the reaction from the Chinese people to the situation of the um, 16-year-old boy being killed, it was very similar to what I've heard like um, African people saying in terms of, for example, the Nigerian that was killed in Guangzhou, I think a while back because he was trying, because of um, when there was a the police raid and he was trying to run away. Yeah. So I feel that in some ways, obviously, the, the um, African government should be doing more to protect like small-scale businesses from Chinese um, individuals coming to set up their own local businesses, because I don't think that that works in the interest of the local population or the local economy.
0: Yeah, but with all due respect, though, I mean, do you, I mean, you see Africa, I mean, what, I mean, you know, the police in, 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 people complain bitterly about the police in Nigeria being nothing more than yeah. corrupt. I mean, you know, and and all throughout the continent, we have a big problem with corruption and, and accountability. So, I mean, what do you think really can happen? Because, you know, yes, yeah, sure, on one sense, we should say African governments should, do more to protect their own people. I don't expect Joseph Kabila in the DRC to do more to protect (laughs) his own people. All he's doing is raping and pillaging his own people. Um, And that's an oversimplification, but at the end of the day, it's not that far. So how how does an African government balance the need to protect their people in reality when they've got a corrupt police force or an ineffective police force or maybe a police force that's just understaffed and under-resourced with this big presence of Chinese who are coming in and presenting a real... A new competitive threat to local merchants
2: yeah that is um, um like most African governments are not as you said equipped to even or even interested in as uh, seem similarly interested in taking a stance or you know um, like changing things in a way that it'd be more less corrupt and more you know in more active in- in protecting the rights of the people, so I think the reality it would actually be not much different from what we see today.
0: So COBUS, a very depressing uh, kind of outlook there. And this really highlights the difference between what people think of when they talk about the Chinese and that there isn't really a single group of Chinese. There are, you know, there's the unofficial, undocumented migrants, the gold mining that we're talking about. And then there's the state-owned enterprise at the official level. Um, it seems like these these tensions are going to only continue to exacerbate, bringing us really to this idea of a reset with relations that was Kind of brought up in this blog, Tea Leaf Nation, by a uh, writer Zhang Yue Zhang. Um, we're going to put a link to that up on Facebook. So, talk to us a little bit about, you know, if there was to be a reset, what could be done.
1: Yeah, I was actually also wondering kind of what, you know, kind of, I, I, I have complete sympathy with his call for a reset, I'm just not sure what that reset would be. Um, one problem is, is that um, obviously, you know, one of the things that we've been working hard at is to to make clear the distinctions between the Chinese government as, a, as an entity, individual Chinese people, and then also Chinese companies, you know, kind of acting as multinational actors. Um, so, well, for example, like this week in, in in Ghana, there's been another little like China Africa scandal, which is um, that w- the big telecom company Huawei has been accused of having funded the printing of T-shirts, key holders, and so on okay. for the the ruling party in Ghana. Um, so, you know, kind of how do you how when you when you call for a reset, you have to find a way to to you know to Look at these different actors, individual actors, the Chinese government, individual Chinese people, and Chinese companies, all acting out of from different backgrounds, from different, you know, kind of different uh, agendas, mm-hmm. um, but still being seen by Africans as somehow being connected, as being basically the same thing. You know, so I don't, I'm not sure whether you have to take the reset from you know attacking the perception of them, uh, or from how they act.
0: I just think it's a weird concept to say that a country as large as China has to do a reset with a continent as large as <laughs> Africa, because I don't know who does, who presses that button. Um, exactly. You know, exactly. there is it implies mm. that, and I but, got into a dispute with somebody on Facebook this week on our Facebook page at facebook.com/slash China Africa Project. And he was saying that you know China wants to export a hundred million people to Africa over the next twenty years. And I just think, God, you know China cannot keep its own milk safe, much less coordinate <laughs> you know you know the exportation of a hundred million people um and it, it, it there's this real myth, and we're it's going to really lead in nicely to our next subject about how much control there is that the Chinese government has over its people in, you know, not only in Africa, but overseas. Yes, I mean, right. if, uh, you know, Rafi, I don't know if you've ever been to a Chinese embassy in Africa, but they're pretty low-key affairs. I mean, this is not like mm-hmm. the American embassy where it's fortified and it's got 50,000 people. Um, yeah. And one of the, if you look at the Chinese social media uh, in Chinese, which I, most people can't read, but one of the things, <laughs> one of the biggest complaints that I see is how Chinese citizens complain that their embassies do nothing for them. They don't help them. You know, they don't support them. They don't give them any resources. So this idea that somehow the Chinese embassy in Accra is coordinating this kind of mass thing, and then in in Nairobi as well, is just it's ludicrous. So I, I just I I take Rafiit's kind of p- point of view here, which thinking it's going to be it's a pretty depressing outlook because this is out of anybody's control. The Chinese can't control it. The Ghanaians can't control it. So Rafaid, on that note, what do we do? What happens here? Do we see inter ethnic and intercultural tensions continue to exacerbate? Um, what can be done, do you think, you know, realistically?
2: I feel that yes, um sort of tensions will they will increase on, until, you know um until it con- it has to come from the the governments to be honest, in terms of protecting more of their local rights' Okay, um, um, a few um, Ghanaians would obviously be happy that, you know, the their government actually cracked down on the illegal miners. But now that the, someone has been killed, Chinese governments aren't going to be happy. So finding that balance is going to be very, very difficult. And it's a delicate skill because if, if it goes one way, it, it would be bad for Ghanaians. And if it goes the other way, it would be bad for Ghana's relations with China.
0: Yeah, which they're becoming increasingly dependent on. Uh, yes. You know, as China is now is the number one export market, the number one investor, and uh, so so that's obviously going to be one area that we look into. Now, again, talking about the misperceptions of the Chinese in Africa, and this is something that's been a theme of the show all day. Uh, we're going to be talking about this question of land grabs. And now, land grabs is a particularly loaded word um, because it harkens back to this idea of the carving up of Africa by the, the, the great European powers in the 19th century, <laughs> and that they were grabbing land. Now, th- there's this, one of the misperceptions, in, in Rafi, you wrote a, a very interesting article that at first I read with a lot of skepticism, but then by the time I got to your conclusion, I was, I was pleasantly surprised. Uh, but you talk about this question of, 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 of are the Chinese coming, on, coming to Africa across the continent, grabbing up land, uh, you know, in order to grow agriculture to export back to China. And just a minor point that I want to bring up, which is China has about 20% of the world's population with about 4% of the world's arable land. So not only from Africa, it's going to be increasingly dependent on importing food to feed its people. And so one place they're looking to is Africa, but are they grabbing up land? And what is the background in, uh, for, for this kind of potentially controversial story?
2: Um, the background that led to me writing that article.
0: Yeah. In, oh, in terms actually, of the context of love of African land grabs, so to speak.
2: Okay. Because um, at that time, I, I came across this um, graphic that talked about, that was well, a map of Africa and it was divided based on like all the foreign powers that were grabbing lands in different African countries. So I noticed there were a few numbers that were attached to China that I felt were not really factual. So I went on and re- researched and read more about this, and I thought it was quite an interesting field because a lot of people talk about land grabs. But I think for me, I've noticed a lot of the information sort of out there isn't factual in terms of the number, uh, like the hectares of land that apparently China owns in the DRC or elsewhere. So I just wanted to write something that would bring like a bit of um, information into that like into that topic
0: now of- you, you use the word grab and I'm very interested here because grab to me implies that somebody takes something and doesn't pay for it or doesn't have any kind of contractual relationship for it again this is this is the relationship with the colonial period where mm-hmm. you know foreign powers came to Africa said this is our land screw you get away that is a grab in my view what the Chinese and what other foreign powers today are doing is they're leasing the land So why do you think that is, and that's, they're not putting a gun to anybody's head. They're not, you know, doing this illicitly. They're actually paying money in exchange for land. Either they're buying it or they're leasing it. That seems like a pretty open transaction. It's what happens in almost any country in the world. Why is this a sensitive topic?
2: It's sensitive because um, in some cases, the people who own the land are not consulted before their land is sold to foreign buyers. So in other words, you know, they wake up one morning and they find out that, you know, some huge Western or foreign company has bought their land and they have to move out of it, you know. So, and in, in that's why it is referred to as a land grab because some, some locals aren't really brought into the de- decision table when their land is being sold. It's between, like, higher government authorities and foreign powers. But, you know, Kobus, yes. Co- this if I, if brings I, up... Kobus, I'm sorry, just let yeah. me
0: bring up one point here on this. This goes back to our the BBC Africa debate who should be held responsible for that is it the foreign power is it the chinese company that bought the land or is it the african the corrupt african you know business partner who sold it without informing the locals where is the accountability on the african side
1: here um i think one of one of the big issues um with this is that on the one hand africans are overwhelmingly frequently still um, subsistence farmers but what you because of the of the kind of bro, uh, of the colonial system um, land ownership and land documentation in Africa is frequently a very broken system so you find that people that communities might live on land that they don't necessarily own on paper even though they've been de, de facto kind of residents there for sometimes more than 100 years so you find a situation where people are they, they find the land sold out from under them um, and because the uh, because the government is corrupt but also because the the documentation system is is broken. Um, you know there is the man- manipulation of documentation. Um, you know that that people that they frequently the documentation is not up is is either not up to date or it's not. Uh, you know it's not in the the, red, uh, the ownership residency connection isn't as clear cut as it as it would be in the West. Um, mm-hmm. So in that situation, you find that that foreign entities find sometimes find themselves in a situation willingly or unwillingly where they they end up sitting. You know now owning land that was sold to them, um, but facing a massive fight with the people who actually live there who don't necessarily own that land land on paper, but in reality have been there for a very long time.
0: You know, this idea, you know, that only about a third of Africa's 630 million hectares of arable land is actually under cultivation, which means that there's tremendous potential. But Rafi, from what I'm hearing from you is that you know, because of the issues tied to nationalism, because of the sensitivity to the history of land use, because of the poor documentation that has talked about, um, that may pose a big barrier for not only the Chinese, but for other countries to come in and to help kind of make this land as as profitable as possible.
2: Yes, yes, that is in fact very, very correct. And
0: so your conclusion on, on this article, and this was again for this was a post that you wrote for the consultancy Africa Intelligence. Uh, was that your conclusion? Was the fact that although the Chinese are coming in in a pretty aggressive way, they're not actually grabbing up land, and so you kind of again refute this notion of a land grab going on?
2: Yeah, especially for those reasons of um, for agriculture, you know, imports, um, growing food in Africa, and importing is because I just didn't see much evidence that this was going on. But maybe, um, and also in terms of what I mentioned of the numbers being different, because like, yeah.
0: So, Kobus, we're once again finding that, you know, perception and reality, you know, we started the podcast talking about, you know, perceptions and reality, myth and reality of the Chinese in popular culture. And we're, we're ending it also on the same kind of discussion about the perception that the Chinese are gobbling up land. And I remember there was a German, a high German minister, uh, uh, you know, about eight months ago or a year ago that also said that, you know, China was on this, had this voracious appetite for, for land, uh, you know, and, and it really caused a lot of, uh, of concern among people when in fact, as, as Rafael is saying, and as we've seen from other folks, um, that reality just isn't there. So why do you think that people have this concern?
1: Yeah, I don't know. This, this, this. Actually, yes. As, as you know, um, this is a kind of a boogeyman that that comes up again and again. Um, Oxfam, you know, recently, I mean, this month, they released a new massive report um, talking about land grabs. And what was very interesting is that they were saying that an area the size of London gets leased away to foreign investors per day in Africa. Um, but um, the thing is, is that it's not being released to Chinese. What it's actually frequent, most often being leased to, are, are biofuel, Western biofuel companies. Um, you, know, so you know, so you find kind of large swaths of land in Africa being, you know, kind of be put under different kinds of, of plants that are used to create biofuel. Um, you know, so I think that that puts a different spin on it. Another kind of weird thing that also came up was that apparently um, major. Uh, very unexpected major players in this in this investment are Amer- big American universities like Harvard, who apparently um, have yes, via, via British hedge, hedge funds, um, have massive investments in Ethiopia, Tanzania, a bunch of other countries. So you know it's it's interesting. Um, you know, you, as, as you said, the issue of land grab makes it sound like people arrive there with guns, um, and you have to, to ask why is it okay for example for Kenya to produce all of flowers and all of the kind of mange to peas and, you know, kind of asparagus that gets eaten in London, Um, why is that not a massive outrage, while, you know, kind of when food gets exported to China, it somehow magically then becomes one, you know, kind of, why why does it have, why do certain kind of investments get get couched in neocolonial colonial terms, while other ones are certain, are only couched in business terms?
0: Rafi, did you hear that question?
2: I did, but I I feel that anyway, this all links to um, perceptions generally about China and Africa, because there's the whole new new colonial perspective and a lot of, you know, wariness with regards to Chinese relations in Africa. And that just shows in how people would talk about land grabs and be more critical about if any... African country was sending food to China as opposed to an African country sending food to the West because I feel in some ways um, relations between the West and Africa no matter how they would be are sort of established while this one between China and Africa is supposed to be new and just different in a way so there's a lot of the this perception negative perception already attached to that that just sort of goes through every single thing that relates to China and Africa in any way
0: and people are willing to believe some of the you know the 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 mythology and then maybe it's tied again with just you know a horrific history of the past several hundred years that that's hard for people to break away from when they deal with outsiders not only outsiders um you know foreigners you know overseas but also you know outsiders from within Africa itself and you talked a lot about how the, in, in the in your piece about how there's a lot of uh you know intranational, you know, or intracontinental land, uh, you know, land use as well. So this is not simply an issue with the Chinese, but this is also an issue Mm -hmm. across African borders. Yes. Mm-hmm. So that, well, that same suspicion. So. Yeah. So, well, that article you can find over on the uh, the – let's see. That is at consultancyafrica.com. It's called Agricultural Development and Land Grabs, in quotes, the Chinese presence in the African agricultural sector. So two really excellent articles coming from Rafayit today. We're just so thrilled that you were able okay. to join us and to kind of share some of your views on this, not from, from culture to agriculture, so really uh, a wide spectrum. And if people want to follow you and uh, what you're doing – where can, where's the best place? Because I know you're on the web in a couple, di- couple different spots where if people want to kind of stay on top of what you're doing in your writing, where can they find you?
2: I'm guessing Twitter would be the best.
0: And what's your Twitter um, name?
2: It's eccentricorobat. Okay.
0: And you also blog at Eccentric Yoruba as well. What's your um, address for that, yes. uh, for that blog?
2: That's eccentricorobat.wordpress.com
0: Excellent. And so, and Kobus, if people want to follow what you're doing down there in Cape Town, where's the best place they can find you?
1: Um, I'm at, on Twitter at Stadenesk. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E.
0: That's Q U E. It's Dada Nesk, and then you can find me at e. Olander, Eolander E O L A N D E R on Twitter. You can, of course, follow us on Facebook.com/slash-China-Africa-Project. We really want to hear from you to hear what your thoughts are, to comment on the show. Do you agree? Do you disagree? And because uh, really, that's what you know the Facebook community is all about. It's unfortunate, though, that the Facebook population we've got is over seventeen thousand, but they're predominantly from Africa. We would love to have more voices from China and more voices from the Chinese world. So uh, in order to kind of facilitate this exchange that uh, we all know is so essential to help improve uh, communication and break some of these myths down. So, so that'll do it for this edition of the China and Africa podcast. Again, you can follow this podcast on iTunes, on, on, on Stitcher, and of course on Facebook, where we've got an archive of the past 25 shows. We'll be back again next Sunday with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thanks so much for listening.